When women and girls are killed It is especially heartbreaking Though you may not be sure why Maybe it's cause when women and girls are killed It's often no surprise When women and girls are killed We say things like It was bound to happen We say what else did you expect From her father, spouse or boyfriend When women and girls are killed The silence becomes conventional And when they determine the assault wasn't sexual We all act like that was a plus At the rate at which women and girls are getting killed The next victim is one of us When women and girls are killed It's because of every choice she's made Vanessa Guillen It's because she chose to make eye contact Instead of look away Malaysia Booker It's because boys will be boys wasn't a good enough reason Jennifer Lowden For her to not defend herself at the risk of being beaten Toyin Salau Valerie Reyes And when the decision is between death or prison Especially when you have children there is no choice at all Just a hope and a prayer that you'll get probation Rosenda Strong When women and girls are killed, it's because of her location Her lack of education, the occupation that she chose Whenever a man is murdered, we never blame it on his clothes But we do when it's a woman Never do we blame a system A system built on the wisdom Of old and sexist cis men When women and girls are killed, it is our collective failure A reflection of us from the ugliest of angles When our women and girls become our angels Before being given a chance at becoming women at all When young, brown women and girls are killed We assume it's due to their faults Like when Brianna Gallegos and Gabby Calzada were killed Tell me, what were your first thoughts? Philippine Excellent Wellness. In alignment with Women's History Month and in solidarity with bringing awareness and support to the ongoing concern of missing and killed Indigenous women and just BIPOC women throughout this nation, you were just listening to the track When Women and Girls Are Killed by one of Beat Rock Music's artists, Faith Santia. As Philippine Ex and Wellness, we also like to support the financial wellness of the independent musicians and artists in our community. You can listen to Faith Santia's music on all digital platforms, and it is also available for purchase through beatrockmusic.com or Bandcamp. Once again, the track title that you were listening to is spelled When Women with an X instead of an E and Girls with three R's are killed. No, I. Returning from our break, we've been talking with Rina Bautista and Dr. Claire Kamaya regarding individuals with developmental disabilities. Take it away, Ryan. Awesome. Let's transition into stories around our community's perception of, you know, individuals living with dis um, developmental disabilities and really how we can all just become better allies, right? Um, this one is up for grabs for anyone. Um, what were some of your personal experiences with individuals with developmental disabilities growing up? Usually we leave this up to our guests, but when we were preparing for this episode, we were doing around Robin and just talking about what our experiences were with uh, living with individuals with disabilities. So it's okay, I'd love to take this one first. And um, actually, I wanted to talk about in particular, a sad story because as kids, there was one uh, Filipino, Filipinex individual that we would make fun of in, when we were kids. And he um, had Down syndrome. 
and unfortunately we bullied him and we didn't know any better because he was different um, and because of that he was often made fun of in hindsight I realized that he was always looking for opportunities to connect and make friends and eventually he became popular because he would walk around our city and remember everyone's name while smiling and saying hi to them. But in all honesty, the other Filipino friends and I that, that grew up with him weren't always kind. And we'd make fun of the way he talked. We'd tease people when he thought he had crushes on them and, and watch them cringe. And he'd do things to entertain us or grab our attention that would often mortify us. And in hindsight, it's embarrassing to acknowledge, but I realized that he was trying in his own ways to connect. But, you know, when you're kids, you don't know any better. And we'd ask him to go away or find other people to play with because we didn't understand why he looked or acted different. And on occasion, I, I just remember him crying to his mom because no one would want to play with him. And in thinking back, it just makes me sad to think that we caused him to feel that way. And I just think it was just awful the way we treated him. So, but whenever we, you know, talk to our parents or they talk to us about being nicer to him, they'd always refer to him as the R word. And, and that was that. And that because he like is, you know, quote unquote retarded that, and even saying that just makes me just feel awful inside, you know, that we had to be nicer to him. And that was all the language that we had. So when I tell this story, I just wish we had the knowledge and sensitivity then that ch children seem to have now in understanding his disability and how to better, how we could have better treated him, you know? And in thinking about him, I'm wondering how other parents can teach their children to be better allies so that children with disabilities like that one that we, that one individual that we grew up with could avoid experiencing this type of cruel treatment that we ended up having to put him through. So thank you for allowing me to share that vulnerability and that embarrassment from my childhood, but I'm hoping that we could find ways to be better allies with individuals with disabilities so they don't have to experience that same hurt and pain the way he did. I know that was probably really, that was hard to share, Cheryl, but I'm sure listeners, um, you know, may have similar stories, but I, I also have a similar story being growing up uh, in summer camp. Maybe I was nine years old and there was another camper there who spoke differently. I don't know what her disability was, but she spoke, you know, in a, in a unique way where, you know, all the campers around her, including myself, teased her, bullied her, said mean things to her. And um, I agree if I, you know, was taught more, I mean, you're, you're taught how to be, you know, always just being told, be nice, be nice. Um, but I feel like when I hear my own children talk about the things they talk about at school, how they're taught empathy and openness and understanding and they they learn more about the difference you know how many like, the diversity there is in their community you know just among like the youth and just you know just like it's just i i just i appreciate that there's so much education that goes on about like just different groups you know just different types of people out there and that they should be all accepted or at least to be you know like everyone has the right to have you know their uniqueness and that that's what is to be kind is to allow them to be unique and not you know belittle them or treat them any differently because of that and you know i have to say that the school that i work at that that uh you know claire was talking about how you know you know like all students or all you know individuals should have like be part of com of a community and not have to change themselves to fit in this community and i truly feel that's at my school they're like they are that they have that opportunity that they you know we talk to the students we teach them you know like 
social skills, like maybe like, you know, appropriate distance, you know, things that you should share and not share with maybe strangers versus like friends, you know, like social skills, right? Um, where it would, it's meant to keep them safe because, you know, we don't want them to be sharing things, you know, with just anybody, personal information with just anybody. However, we do not try to take away their, you know, their, um, their individuality. They're like, you know, they want to sing around. They want to like be loud. They want to just, you know, wear, dress what they want to wear. They want to talk the way they want to talk. They want to talk about the topics they want to talk. I feel like at the school I'm at, and I feel like a lot of places, they are able to do that. So we're not, you know, we're, we're celebrating, like we're celebrating. We're not trying to change them. We're, you know, and I, and I feel like that's how you can be an ally is, is thinking that you're not trying to alter the person, that you accept the person for who they are and all, whatever it is that you, you know, you, you're open to it and that, you know, they're part of the community as so are you and they have that, you know, that space to be there and, and not to make them feel like they're, they're weird or there's something wrong, like it's it's okay. You know, like one of my students was, you know, he like uh, during lunchtime, he likes to blast his music and dance. And, you know, like I watched to make sure that kids aren't teasing him and, you know, we're just making sure all that. But for the most part, like all the students are being loud and dancing on campus and things like that. They're just, you know, they're being, they're being kids. So I think that's like the best way. Yeah, um, you know, with regard to my memories, my um, from when I was younger with um, with people with uh, developmental disabilities, it's mostly a story of invisibility. I think you know, um, I I think that there was a lot of separation. I remember in high school, um, the students with developmental disabilities were in a trailer on the other side of campus. And they, the only time I would see them is with their aid during lunchtime. Um, I do remember that there were, you know, quirky or maybe socially odd individuals in, in my junior high and high school classes. And they were generally ostracized by the rest of us, myself included. So I, I share in that embarrassment and that shame. Um, but I think as far as, um, the mainstreaming, I don't think I saw it as much, or maybe I was just too wrapped up in my own world that I didn't notice, which is also really sad um, to not notice, you know, different people with differences. Um, but as far as, you know, being an ally, I think um, there's a lot that we can do. You know, uh, you both mentioned that, um, kids nowadays seem to understand more. And I think there has to be that sort of concerted effort of teaching students um, of all abilities that there are differences among students and how to work with them. We had um, one of our students that we had worked with for quite some time, um, We, for a long time, his mother had challenges with wanting to share his diagnosis with others yeah, which I understand. It's, you know, kind of a, um, it could be a source of shame, but also her rationale was, um, I don't want others to see him differently. However, you know, in school, there was no doubt that he was different. And so it came to a point where we talked to her and said, you know, our options are that we could continue to kind of make it sort of unspoken, or we could directly work with his his classmates. He had been with these classmates since he was in kindergarten and he was entering second grade and they are already noticing that he's different. And he was going to be in this private school with the same kids from year to year. They were going to transition together from grade to grade. Why not create an opportunity for them to become his community? So for the first three years that we worked with him, we actually went into the classroom and had a date, like a, an hour's time to share about him with his classmates and ask them, what could you do to help support him? And I think when it starts early, it was one of our best cases because when this kid graduated eighth grade from this private school, he was the talk of the town. He knew not only all the kids, but he knew all their families and everybody wanted to take a picture with him. He went around and said, hey, Mr. So-and-so, 
you know, can we get a picture together? He was still very socially odd, but he was very accepted because I think there was some, you know, time that was taken to help kind of teach the students to better understand him. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, so I think there's still work to be done. I still think there's a lot of bullying that happens. We still get a lot of um, notes from parents about students feeling a certain way. And, um, you know, to, to be honest, most of our students, I'm trying to think of our caseload right now, most of our students currently, they have a developmental diagnosis, but then a lot of them also have an emotional piece of it. So they're suffering from anxiety and depression and taking medication for those sorts of things. So it's really important, the community piece. As we were talking about this last week going into tonight's episode, you know, I was really thinking of the times where I've been faced with um, someone with a developmental disability. And kind of going back to my story, like I, I don't really remember, right? Or I don't, I don't remember really seeing um, outside of when we would have community events, like um, we would have prayer services at my, my parents' house. And I do remember um, one of the families bringing in one of their kids to, to the house for the prayer service. And it was always, I want to think of it as kind of like a, like a dual approach. It was, it was, it wasn't really talked about right in, in during that event. Um, but you could see some of the interactions with the adults, kind of like the, the talking behind the hand or kind of like the whispers. Right. And so I saw that, that, that part, that piece. And then I, I would also see the piece where there was like this protection of the parents of their kids into the space, knowing that, yes, my, my kids have a developmental disability, but I'm going to do everything I can to protect my child. And so I kind of saw, I kind of saw those two, um, saw those two, I don't know how to put it in terms of interactions and, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of telling in terms of how throughout the generations, how a developmental disability is something that people shy away from and talking about to other families, other outside of the, the nuclear family, right? And then there's also this piece where um, you see now the outreach and the amount of resources and the amount of even love and compassion um, with families. So I, I, I see, I see a generational gap in terms of how um, even Filipinos handle um, developmental disabilities. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's yeah, definitely. I think there's like, um, I think there's a lot of wanting mostly to protect, maybe a little bit of shame, but also very much mostly trying to lovingly protect from the outside world that can be harsh. Um, but I think, um, I think Rena had mentioned this last time too, that she's seeing a lot of differences in terms of support with um, maybe younger generations of um the Filipino Americans. Um, yeah, I want to add that I, you know, the where I work, I work with a lot of Filipino families, you know, uh, first generation, you know, families who've immigrated to here and their children are in my classroom. And, you know, I, I work with these families for usually four years, maybe beyond, you know, we, we talk frequently. So, you know, you know, I see a lot, we, we, there's communication and whenever I see them together, it's always, you know, to me, all the actions that they do with their children is all out of love and just, you know, knowing that they're going to care for their child for as long as it's going to take and they would do whichever to protect them and all of those things. So, you know, um, the idea that maybe Filipinos, you know, have like some sense of shame in whatever regards, like I'm not 
really sure I ever saw that. It was definitely not brought up. But of course, you know, as a professional, like, would they would if I asked someone, would they ever really share that? To, you know, honestly. But I think, I think that could just be an individual feeling. If you know, not just Filipinos, like any any family. Um, you know, going back about sharing personal experiences. You know, as on a personal note, like I have a half sister. A very young half sister um, who has autism, so I didn't grow up with her. And speaking just to my dad about all of this and seeing him having a you know young child again, you know it's it's all love and whatever it takes to support you know my half sister. And you know I asked him like, did you ever feel shame? Like, do you ever feel anything negative? And he's like, no, not at all. No shame ever. Maybe sadness sometimes. You know, maybe frustration, but I, I, I never feel any shame about having your sister. So, you know, I, I think, um, I think if any families out there, you know, if they consider this topic, if maybe just, if uh, they consider just like their actions, like what drives their actions and how they have, you know, intro or like what their decisions for their their child. Is it out of protection? What like what is driving their with their actions? Is it is there other like other feelings and you know maybe that needs to be addressed? I don't know. You know, since we're you know really honing in on allyship, right? Um, I guess for our listeners, what are some of the things in in terms of the language, right? Now we're we're really segmenting into inclusive language in terms of allyship. What are some of the ways that um, we can really incorporate um, language that's inclusive um, when we're talking about, you know, we're really diving deeper into um, developmental disabilities? What are some of the terminology or some terms, phrases, or things that that um, ourselves can really start to incorporate, um, making sure that we are being inclusive, right? Do you have any thoughts or Cheryl? Um, yeah, I think um, Reed and I were chatting about this too. When I, at least when I was going through all of my um, schooling, um, it was always person first, a language. So it was um, student with autism, student with ADHD. So it, it was always person centered first. But I think the direction now is really centered on the individual's choice on how they want to be referred to um, in general. So I don't know even I don't even know that professionals like us would be the best people to ask, you know. Um, but in some cases, I think the student doesn't have a preference or isn't at that level where they or that I shouldn't say level but isn't at that place where it's something that they think about so they may not have a preference and in that case I personally tend to still use student first language and um, the developmental disability as secondary to that if we're talking in sort of the professional circle I don't know Reno what do you think <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly. And and just to add, I think if we're talking about like how the language and what to use um, when you in any, you know, whether you're a professional, a family member, a friend, if you do discover that an individual has a disability, developmental disability, that because I hear it often, they'll say that person might say, oh, but you don't look like you have a disability or you don't seem like you have an intellectual impairment or oh, why are you in that classroom? And, you know, I know it's not from a mean place, you know, that, that it comes out, but to be, I guess, just be more mindful that that kind of, those kinds of things, you know, like it's noticed, it's noticed from the student, it's noticed from like, you know, their family who or their friends around them. So just, you know, keep that in mind. And, you know, always just think like they're just the student, right? Like what, you know, if it's not necessary to bring up like, why, why say it, right? Unless that student is choosing to share or there's, I guess, in some professional setting. Yeah, I really liked how you said that right now, Rena, because not all disab disabilities even have a face, right? And 
And there are even a lot of people with disabilities where you won't even, you can't tell like just walking past them on the street that they might have a disability, you know, or even in your social interactions with them. So I, I'm really glad that you brought up that last point. I think too, when somebody doesn't appear a certain way, like they don't appear as if they have maybe a developmental disability, Sometimes, though, I feel like it gives people an excuse to kind of overjudge an individual almost as if like, oh, if I had known you had a disability, I wouldn't have thought X, Y, and Z about you. So, you know, it's just one of those tricky situations. I think, you know, in terms of allyship, there's this um, theory in, in academics called behavioral theory. And in terms of the learning model and the teaching model it's basically um in simple terms it's like how one behaves shows us exactly what there is to know about that person and this is kind of what a lot of testing is centered on right like we we test a student and we make the assumption that their performance on that test is indicative of what they know about that particular skill and on the surface it sounds very very um, reasonable. But what I've kind of learned, uh, you know, after having worked with students um, with varying developmental disabilities, is that that's not all often the case, that the way somebody behaves, how they perform on a test, the way they act, even the words they use, are not always indicative of what they know or what they intend. And I think that's like the biggest thing to really try to understand, to be able to be, um, to really understand people and to be generous and, and caring about each other is that try to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, somebody might behave a, a certain way or act a certain way, but that doesn't indicate, you know, what's really inside all the time. And, you know, the, we have this thing and, um, you know, when I went to a lot of autism conferences early on, um, in the early 2000s, um, a lot of the talks were centered on this idea that people with autism do not have the ability to see things from others' perspectives. Hence, they behave a certain way that is socially inappropriate. Because, you know, if you can turn the lens on yourself, um, the theory is that if you can see yourself from another's view, then you're going to behave appropriately. And because a student with autism may behave oddly, the theory was they can't see from that perspective. And there might be a little bit of that, but I, you know, when you get to know students for a really long time, you start to realize they might be actually feeling more from others' perspectives than we think, um, even more so than a typical person that so much so in some cases that I've witnessed that it appears that they feel things more deeply. And that's why they have a tendency to turn away maybe. So, I mean, no one really knows, you know, we, I think we have to approach um, everyone in life with this idea that just because you said or did something a certain way, maybe the intent was different. And that's so tricky with language, you know? So as we're approaching the end of our episode, Claire, and being that you're the owner and director of Doors Educational Center, can you please share what kinds of services your center provides? Yeah, so as I had mentioned before, we, we are mostly academic remediation, but our lens is a little bit different. So we're not a tutoring center in that we are giving content. It's more like we're trying to understand the cognitive processes as far as how a student thinks. So um, I'll give you an example, and this might make it a little more concrete. Um, a good portion of our students have maybe a dyslexia diagnosis, for example. And dyslexia, as many of you might know, is, um, is a diagnosis given when the student typically has an average to high intelligence, but their reading and spelling skills fall a certain number of percentage points below their intelligence level. So in other words, if you read a story to them, they could understand it beautifully because the comprehension is high. 
but if they had to read it themselves because that they can't do the actual decoding as well, the comprehension scores might look low. So comprehension isn't the challenge, it's more really accessing what those words say. Um, and so the assumption that we take on is these students have been through public education and probably have received the content. Why did they not, why were they not able to take it in and use it? So we wanna look at the cognitive processes underscoring that. So for some students, it lies in, for most students, it lies in a visual memory issue. So these are the students who, for example, if you ask them to spell the word through, like I walked through the door, they might spell it T-H-R-O-O. So it's phonetic, right? But it's not orthographically correct. It follows phonics rules, but there's a memory component, you know, like in the English language, you learn all these sounds, but then you have words like of, O-F, and neither one of those letters makes the sounds in that word. So there's a memory component. And so when we do a heavier analysis into what the issue is and we do kind of an error analysis, we look at what kinds of mistakes they're making, then we can better design the program. And so for some students, we're going to target specifically visual memory exercises that are going to improve reading. Um, and then another example is on the other end, we have students who have like hyperlexia who read beautifully. And a lot of times students on the autism spectrum fall in this category where they're beautiful readers. Um, but when I go to ask comprehension questions, they might not understand a good chunk of what they had read. So what is the underlying thing that goes into understanding text? And if you think about it, it's imagery. So when you go to read a book, you should be making a picture in your mind about what the story is about. And some students need to be explicitly taught to do that. Like, how do we do that? Do we do it a sentence at a time, a paragraph at a time? Um, and then in some cases, the students don't know how to understand um, visually presented information. So when they're looking through a picture book, they're not quite sure what's the important part to be looking at in this image. And so that kind of creates another challenge for some students. So what we do is we look at their assessments, we analyze sort of what the um, their responses are in certain academic skills, and then we utilize that to create a program for that student where they can come in one-to-one -one and work specifically on that skill toward a specific academic goal. So that's what we do. <laughs> awesome, thank you for sharing. Um, so for our, our parents, families, and friends, you know, that are really looking for resources for their loved ones, right, that are, you know, living with developmental disabilities, what are some of the resources that you can share with us? So it's kind of a two-parter. So along with that question, um, we actually did receive a community question um, from Instagram from Mary Grace. Thank you, Mary Grace. Um, who has brothers with autism and wanted to know uh, what recommendations you both might have for her brothers who have finished high school but may not apply for college. So, Rena, we'll, we'll, we'll have you start off, kick us off here. All right. Well, I, I feel I want to address uh, Mary Grace for asking that question because it's right up what I like to do, right? So, so she has brothers. Uh, Marie Grace. Oh, I'm sorry, Marie Grace. Okay, so she has brothers who just finished high school, so they may or may not have received a diploma, right? So students, um, you know, they might do all the credits to get a high school diploma, or they may just finish their four years of high school and get a certificate of completion, right? And in some school districts, they have a transition program for those students who don't get a diploma that just allows them to still receive special education services in the school district and that's all the way up to the age of 22 years old, right? And that's, and again, you have to check your school district and where you live if that applies, right? Because uh, it could look differently, but um, for the most part, students who are receiving special education services get it till they're 22 years old. And then, so in Mary Grace's situation, 
maybe her brothers, um, you know, still need special ed services. Uh, so is there a transition program that those students can that they can access? Um, do they still need support to, you know, if they want to go to college, if they want to go to, uh, if they want to work, um, you know, who, you know, how, how can they get um, support still? Um, and, and also just like recreation leisure activities, you know, there's lots of uh, organizations out there that, you know, that provide those kinds of, you know, rec leisure activities like sports and, you know, classes of interest, you know, social events like dances, you know, a lot of cities, they have, um, you know, like the city of like Chula Vista, they have, uh, um, you know, like, um, therapeutic services and San Diego has therapeutic services. So that's services for people with disabilities that they just throw different events and they, you know, they're the people who work there are, you know, trained to work with people with developmental disabilities. So uh, maybe her brothers need that part as well. Right. Um, you know, she can ask her, they could refer back to their high school teacher for that if they're not quite sure. Um, but if they graduate with a diploma, like any student who graduates with a diploma and they're not sure if they're you know, ready to go to college or they wanna go to college, well, they can get a job. They can look into like a, some kind of certificate program. They can you know, find some other ways to, um, to have an enriching life, right? They, not, ever, not everyone has to go to college, right? But I'm, I'm pretty sure they want to do some kind of something where they're supporting themselves eventually maybe, right? Awesome, thank you. Claire? Um, yeah, so let's see. I think Rena did a really great job of answering that question. I, I, I can speak probably a little bit um, more broadly in terms of um, just services across the board for individuals with disabilities. Some of the, the websites that I point families to include on a nationwide level, um, Autism Speaks is a good starting point for families um, with individuals who have an autism diagnosis. There's also CHAD, um, which stands for um, Children and Adults with ADD or ADHD. Um, and then there are some, what I, one that I really like as a starting point for families is Rights Law, which is um, special ed advocacy um, site. And it's a website in which families, it's nationwide, and families can learn about um, the IEP process, 504 plans, advocacy, and conservatorship, which I think is important if you've got adults that you're, that you're talking about who maybe may not be able to function independently. Um, and I know that's a tricky topic with all the Britney Spears stuff going on. <laughs> conservatorships in general, but it's so important for, for individuals with special needs to have those things set up for them with trusted individuals. And I always have families coming to me during the high school years going, you know, what do I do about conservatorships? And I try to point them to some special ed um, attorneys. We have some in our area here, but rights law is generally a good place to find some of that information. Um, and then as far as community building, there's also things like um, the Grandparent Autism Network, GAN, because um, grandparents are a great source of community for, for individuals with autism and, and also just individuals in general with um, developmental disabilities. And there's um, siblingsofautism.org as well. So since she is the sibling, um, that's, a, that's a good source as well. Um, and, you know, those individuals, the family members of individuals with developmental disabilities also need a lot of community support. So those are great places where they can kind of, you know, talk to people that are in the same, in similar situation, and they can work together and share resources. Um, I think did Rena did you mention already like in California it's the local regional centers usually that's that where families need to go pre-school age and then post-school age um, that's what it is in California and I apologize I don't know what the system is set up like for other states if if there's a regional center similarity so, 
41 states have regional centers, so okay. um, you have to check your state if you have that because there are a few that don't. Um, but they are um, who, who you would go to. So, you're, you know, if you have a child with a disability or you feel like, you know, you sex or something, you know, that is just not quite right that you want to, like, you know, look into, you would speak to your, the, your child's primary doctor, right? And um, they would help um, diagnose your child and then you could receive early intervention services or before school there, you know, before they go into school um, through regional center. And so they receive it, they go into kindergarten up to high school and everything, you know, is working, is going well. Maybe you'll you, use more of their services. Um, you know, like respite care, they could find, you know, maybe they'd help you with like behavior interventions or more, you know, something with education. But, you know, then then when they're in school, though, they look at the school providing those services. Um, but then say they're age out of they're almost about to age out of school, either they receive a diploma or they're going to age out at the age of 22 years old, then the regional center uh, would continue um providing those services if they need it. So, uh, sorry, let me just back up again. So if they uh, don't receive a diploma and they stay in the school district until they're 22 years old, um, when they leave the school district after 22, regional center would still provide those services, special education services, employment opportunities, maybe independent living skills, those things. That's what who would pay for for uh, for that. So that's why I always tell my families, like, you know, um, make sure you have that relationship with your regional center. Uh, and again, if you don't have that around you, you can look into those resources that Claire had mentioned. Um, and and um, there's also social uh, SSI. I don't know if we have, if that's, um, some, but that's again, something, something that you could talk to your regional center rep about representative yeah. about. I think start with the, some of those bigger organizations and a lot of them have search engines that are to point you in the right direction for more local. I do want to say that if any of you out there are like in or in the orange County area, um, spirit league is a really great organization. Um, and it's a sports organization for individuals with developmental disabilities from pre-K and they have an adult program now. So they go all the way up and it's organized sports. So it's such a great community setting where they get together every weekend and they play sports together. And then when they get into adulthood, they're starting to do programs like, I believe, and don't quote me on this, but I think they started maybe like a CrossFit kind of situation for the adults, something more adult oriented, but they're always trying to revamp their program to work with the age group and to work on skills that they think that that age group is going to be, um, that's going to be useful for them socially. So I think they even at some point considered doing like dancing as one of their things, because dancing is a social skill. So yeah, so those are great groups. And I think like Autism Speaks, Chad, Rights Law, those are really good ones as good starting points. Also, um, your local neuropsych or educational psychologist is a great resource. It's a good starting point for getting assessment, like a full assessment, and then a good starting point for resources in your area. As we wrap up this last section of questions, briefly, um, maybe if you two can share, you do all this amazing stuff, you're both mothers. How do you practice self-care and wellness in your own lives? We are Philippinex in wellness, so so curious to know what you all do to stay balanced. We'll start with actually I, whoever wants to take it first. I'll go first because mine's short. Because <laughs> I know Rena is really good at this. I'm terrible at self-care. I, you know, like I said, I have my girlfriend's group who keeps me going on a day-to-day -day basis with words of encouragement and things like that. Um, I try to have my quiet time. I'm a plant person like Rena, So I, I enjoy like the little gardening that I can do. I enjoy reading, but I'm really bad about maintaining physical activity, which is one of my goals. And it's always been one of my goals. So it's really hard. I just, you know, and my kids now are high school, well, one's in high school and one just graduated. And so I'm kind of feeling like emptiness is coming soon. 
And until until that comes, I want to be there for everything that my youngest does because it's going to be the last, you know. So, you know, sadly, I put myself last, but I'm going to try. <laughs> Ryan, love to, I'm sure, take you on, Claire. What about you? <laughs> what about you? Uh, so yes, I have lots of interests, um, but I mentioned like my mom, she really got me like going as far as like physical exercise was like a big part of her life that I saw all the time. So when I started my career and started having a family, I made sure that some, some kind of physical activity was scheduled into my, into my day. So I work at I work out at uh, Collabo Fit, which is a gym in Chula Vista. We do CrossFit style workouts. We do Olympic lifting, strongman stuff, gymnastic stuff, like everything. It's always fun. It's a group setting, which I love. I you know I love interacting with others. Uh, my gym is amazing because not only are they open. Um, to everyone, they've opened the door, their doors to my students. So my students actually work there. They gave them a work opportunity to have to learn some job skills over there. So I take them there. Um, they also are offering a one month membership to those listening today for free for new members only. So if you live in San Diego and want to try some, you know, sort of CrossFit style working out, you can come check out CollaboFit. You can check them out on Instagram. And the key word is that Olympic lifter I had mentioned earlier, the first uh, Filipino to win gold, Heidelin Diaz. So you, if you DM CollaboFit on Instagram, you can communicate with the owners and they'll hook you up. Um, also, like Claire mentioned, I love plants. It's kind of like one of those COVID hobbies that I got into and I kind of just went all in and just went from like three plants to like 300 plants. Um, but I just love seeing like plants grow and, you know, getting being outside in the sun that I think that just helps with like just altering my, you know, my physical and emotional state if I'm ever feeling stressed out, just being outside. And uh, San Diego has a great uh, plant community, San Diego Houseplant BS BST. Uh, you know, learned, you know, just uh, learned a lot about plants from other people and just enjoy um, plants with others, too. So. As we begin to close, how can our listeners find um, find you all if you if they have any any additional questions um, or or especially for you, Claire, like uh, how would they be able to access your services? Um, that you offer at your educational center? So they can shoot me an email at info at doorsed.com. And my assistant will take a look at it and we can schedule an informational call um, and talk about some options if that's something that they're looking for. Um, I could also be reached on um, the Doors Ed Center IG. Um, I don't post on it, but I do respond there if anyone wants to message me there. Awesome. And if anyone has any questions, you want to talk about plants, you want to talk about working out, or if you have any specific questions about special education, if you yourself are interested in a career in special education, um, like I am, I would like to be your resource to any of those topics, you can shoot me an email at rcoronel at sandy.net. I'm pretty sure it'll be posted somewhere in this um, in this podcast. But um, yes, I, I um, am here to help. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, both Rena and Claire, really, bottom of our hearts, um, for talking to our community today about developmental disabilities. It truly was an honor to have you both um, share in our space. Um, we're excited to, to witness how your journeys unfold and we are always here to support both of you um, as part of our Philippine X and wellness family. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, look out for our next session that we will be live streaming again on both ours and SoCal Filipinos YouTube channels on Wednesday, March 16 at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We'll be talking with Chef Reina Montenegro about vegan Philippine cuisine, honoring yet another female identified individual 
for Women's History Month. As we close, we'd like to say thank you again to our guest speakers, Rena Bautista and Dr. Claire Kamaya, our Missing in Action co-host and moderator, Safo, who's celebrating their anniversary with our partner. Happy anniversary, Safo and Tiff. Our co-hosts, SoCal Filipinos, my husband and our designer, Richie Ramirez. Our advisors, Allison De La Cruz and Rian De Los Reyes. Grazian and Classy of Beat Rock Music for consent to use your tracks on our show, including Faith Santhia of Beat Rock Music for when women and girls are killed that you heard at the break. Our community partners, This Filipino American Life and Trek Table, and all of our community members for your shares and contributions. As always, we'll share more about our guest speakers' offerings on our Instagram stories and highlights for permanent access with their upcoming events. Be sure to follow us at Philippine X and Wellness on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and on Twitter at Philippine X, the letter N, well, followed by the letters N and S, all one word. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our Philippine X and Wellness YouTube channel to help us get our domain at 100 subscribers. Help us reach our goal and just know with your help, we're almost there. Awesome. Thank you all. Have a great and good night, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are globally. Again, continue to take care of yourselves and each other. And maraming salamat. Surugit na nga salamat. Balance up shop is a line. I'm trying to protect my peace, but I'm out of my mind. I'm trying to do good with these demons inside. I wanna find my way, but some days I barely survive.